0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Do we really know what happened? The brother did. It the it. brother, that's what I thought too. Yeah. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. We're both into like true crimes. Uh,
2: deathy, murdery thing.
1: Yeah. Maybe that should be the title. Uh, <laughs> uh
2: deathy, murdery thing.
1: Could be that. Could be something not that, because that sucks. That's going to be our theme song.
2: It'll be just a that. silent recording
1: of me going, "Hey, you done with your Oreo?" <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm almost done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, welcome to mystery
1: Mur- murdery thingy. Murdery mystery thingy. Murdery mystery thingy. I know the name of.
2: <laughs> I think.
1: I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. And this is mystery murdery thingy.
2: Or murdery dun, dun, mystery dun. thingy. Or murdery mystery thingy. Cause I'm gonna be honest when I say I like really don't remember.
1: Pretty sure it's
2: Isn't that sad? Mystery
1: murdery thingy. Okay. Pretty sure.
2: I mean, so what are you doing? Is it a mystery, a murdery or a thingy?
1: Mine is definitely a mystery, mystery. Or kind of a thingy mystery, maybe. Okay. Um I wanted to take a bit of a break from the murder and assassination and gore that I've been dealing with the past couple of times. So mine is most decidedly not murdery. There's no one dies. Although there will be some injuries along the way. So we'll get to that.
2: That's so funny because mine is super gory and it is a murder mystery. Great.
1: So you'll go first. Cool. And then we'll talk about Weird shit in the news. Whoa.
2: Whoa. Excuse me. So, okay. Let's start. So, I am focusing on Germany's most famous unsolved crime, the Hinterkaifeck killings. I think that's how you say
1: it. Sounds right.
2: Yeah. So... The murders happened in Bavaria, Germany in 1922 on a small homestead located a half a mile behind, or hinter, the town of Kaifik. It was the home of Victoria Gabriel and her two kids, um, Cecilia, who was seven, and Joseph or Josef? I'm not sure. Is Josef like Sweden? That's like Swedish, right?
1: I think they say Josef in Germany as well.
2: Okay. Joseph, who was two and Victoria's elderly parents lived there as well um Andreas and uh also her the grandmother's name is also Cecilia Andreas and Cecilia Gruber so on April 4th neighbors began to investigate once the family hadn't been seen in school or a church for the past three days so they started a search party and they found four brutally mutilated bodies in the barn and two more in the house. The four in the barn were Victoria, her parents, and uh, the younger, Cecilia. Two-year-old Josef and their maid, who it was her first day on the job.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
2: Uh, they were found dead in the house. So, like I said, this is pretty brutal.
1: So it's a total of six people killed.
2: Six, yes. Um, the elder, Cecilia showed signs of strangulation and had blows to the head, which left her with a cracked skull. Her husband, Andreas, was covered in blood and his cheekbones could be seen protruding from the flesh. Victoria's skull was also smashed and the right side of her face showed nine star-shaped wounds, indicating she was hit with a blunt object. And the younger Cecilia... Her lower jaw had been shattered and she had large wounds on her neck and her face. So, the autopsy found that they were killed with a mattock. Mattock? Mattock? It is a pickaxe-looking thing. Oh, okay. Nice, right? Right. The most chilling is that Cecilia likely remained alive for several hours and in shock because there was evidence that she had pulled out her own hair. It was in clumps. Wow. Wow, yeah. Quite gruesome. Yeah. The maid, the maid Maria and Yosef, were found inside. They were also brutally murdered. She was killed by crosswise blows to the head in her room, and Yosef was in his bed in his mother's room, and his skull was found to be cracked as well. He had blunt force trauma to the, to the face. It was said that the family had been systematically lured to the barn one by one, and killed with the with the pickaxe. The bodies in the barn had been stacked on top of each other and covered in hay. Maria and Josef's bodies in the house were covered with sheets. Their farm animals and their Pomeranian watchdog were unharmed, but What's weird and also about this there's a lot of weird stuff about this um, is that they were taken care of and fed for several days after the family had been killed. There was evidence that the killer had been there for days, eating meals and lighting fires in the hearth.
1: Wow, yeah, that is creepy.
2: There were a series of uh odd things that happened like leading up to these killings, so when the police questioned. Um, the former maid, the one before Maria, um, she thought that the property was haunted. And so the cops asked her about this. And she said that she had come to the conclusion after constantly hearing sounds in the attic and experiencing experiencing an unsettling feeling of being watched. Yeah. Andreas all, had also confided in neighbors about um, some other weird things that happened days before that they were killed, um, a newspaper that he did not buy was found in his home. A set of footsteps were discovered leading from the forest to the farmstead. And the footsteps were, um, they were in the unmarked snow and they were only leading in one direction. And nobody knew who they belonged to. Mm -hmm. To uh, make matters even stranger one of the family's two keys disappeared shortly before the murder as well. And it's possible that the days leading up to the killing, t- killing someone had been sneaking around around the homestead, like, planning things and, like, in the house and shit. That's like, what it
1: sounds like, like yeah. he was casing the place.
2: Yeah, like they...
1: Which, of course, we've heard about the, the Spider-Man and... Um, that was creepy. Was it uh, Ted Bundy who used to do that, like, hang out in people's houses leading up to the crime itself?
2: I think so. If I know
1: some famous serial killer did that. My well. main
2: man, the night stalker, Richard Ramirez.
1: That's who I was thinking of. Richard he Ramirez. tried doors and shit. Right, right, which right, is right. so scary. Yeah, he
2: would just walk around and like not like wiggle door handles. If it was open, he'd walk in. Exactly. um Lock your doors, people. Right. So, yeah, and so that also is kind of funny because the maid was like, "I always heard, I was always hearing things." So, that could also be kind of related to that, but, I mean, we don't really know. Okay, so, in the initial investigation, police looked at transients and vagrants, um, as possible suspects, because they're always passing by the homestead, um, but they really never got any evidence for that, nothing came up, uh, and there was also, this is another one of the weird things, there was some weird family stuff going on, and so... The police then looked at several men that were involved in the family. And so this kind of goes with the theories that were there. So Victoria was a widow. Her husband died in World War I. And she was in a relationship with a man named Lorenz Schlittenbauer, who also led—he he, he was also the one that led the search party. So Victoria and Lorenz had plans to get married, but her father, Andreas, interfered. And uh, Lorenz then eventually married married somebody else. Um, according to others in the watch party, Lorenz knew his way around the farm really well, and he seemed nonchalant and unfazed when the bodies were found, but the police failed to place him at the crime scene. Like, there wasn't any evidence for him being there, and it didn't make sense. So there was, yeah, there was a lack of evidence. And, uh, they also said that his behavior could be due to the just initial shock of what happened, and he also knew his way around the farm because he was in a relationship with Victoria so he was there so to this day cops don't know who the killer is and the case has been reopened several times in the last 95 years and the most recent one was in 2007 where police used new investigation techniques to look into the murders and i mean i mean this has happened before like once dna came out people started going back to cases all the time. Right. And sometimes they were solved, sometimes they weren't, and this one this one wasn't.
1: There are multiple TV shows that are built around that premise, for right? For sure, for sure. Cold case files, forensic yeah. files, yeah. et cetera, et cetera.
2: Um, the thing is, is that since it was so long ago, a lot of the evidence was gone, and it was also um, before World War II, mm. so a lot of it was lost right. in the upheaval of that. Right. Um, and people were looking all over the farm so possible evidence could have been trampled and not taken care of there. Um, so that's one of the reasons why it was, it's so hard to solve and mm-hmm. it probably will never be solved. Um, they, but the police landed on a theory, but they kept it a secret. Nobody knows what it is. And they did that out of respect for the remaining family members, even though to me that doesn't make any sense. Because I feel like you would want closure, but maybe they came to a theory that was like
1: implicated a family member, you're saying?
2: Yeah. Like... Actually, I have more. I have more. Okay. So. So here are some theories. Um, Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel, came back from the war and killed them all. Uh, but it was found that he had been killed in France a decade earlier, and um Many, many soldiers attested to seeing, seeing his body. Okay. And some say Victoria... Pretty good,
1: pretty good alibi. Yeah, yeah, Being yeah. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> pretty
2: good. He just wasn't there. Right, right. right. Um, some say Victoria and Andreas killed the family before turning the weapons on themselves. So here's the thing. Um, Andreas was... Both Andreas and Victoria have been accused of incest, and Victoria even went to jail for a couple months back in 1915. Um, so Andreas had incestuous attitudes, and he was abusive. So, um, also, apparently Victoria had siblings, but she was the only one that survived to adulthood.
1: Mm, Dan, yeah. do they know what happened to the other ones? Or it's... No. Ooh.
2: Yeah. Um, but... There wasn't evidence that this has been a murder-suicide. Like, that autopsy didn't, didn't reveal that type of thing. And also, pickaxe. Right. Um, so, the only certainties are that it was someone who didn't live on the farm, but had knowledge of the homestead. And the main thought is that it was someone who had some sort of vendetta against the family because there was all this other crap going on with them. Also, fun fact, the skulls were given to clairvoyants, so some people who thought they were psychic and could figure out something from the skulls and this and the other thing. Mm -hmm. um, They wanted to find... Apparently it was to find more about the killer or the victims.
1: Okay, so they held some like seances with them and
2: things of that nature. I guess, but the skulls were kept in Munich inexplicably for some reason, and the family and their maid were buried without their heads. Yeah. And the skulls were like I said, they were lost um during World War Two and they're lost to this day. They've never been recovered.
1: Ooh, that's creepy. Right?
2: Um I'm done. <laughs> Is that bad?
1: <laughs> no, no, I mean it's whatever you know, whatever you have, we're thirteen minutes.
2: Um right now.
1: So if you have any more you've got plenty of time.
2: My sources were... Well,
1: okay, so t- just tell me, what do you think actually happened? After having looked at all this, what's your best guess as to what is, re- is the real thing?
2: I think it was either Lorenz who did it or an outside intruder... Um, it could have been a transient person, um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they had all this, like, other stuff. Um, I don't really know. I wish...
1: (sighs) Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to tell, really, just from the way that they did the investigation was so kind of ham-handed that it's it's difficult to really know the facts. But I think we know now most people are killed by close family members. Mm-hmm. Like Just from a statistical standpoint, murders tend to occur between people who know each other very well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the baseline in some respects. And to me, the fact that they continue to take care of the farm animals suggests that it was someone who lived there or was a part of the family or at least had some strong connection to those those animals because it just seems so strange that a serial killer who's some transient who's just going around doing these things would have taken that time to care for the animals Mm -hmm. as well. It just seems like very, very strange. Maybe it was the previous maid. It could have been, right? And then she talks about this ghost and all these things, you know, to try to move them off the trail or, or But know. I I really do believe somebody
2: was like in there
1: in the house with them. That's definitely what it sounds like.
2: Um in Lorenz, maybe he hired somebody because I also read that um like on uh Victoria's father Andreas didn't approve of them. Right. So they ended up separating, and then Lorenz ended up marrying somebody else. Right. And they had a baby. But the baby died two weeks earlier.
1: Oh.
2: And it and it's also stated that uh Yosef, the two year old, the youngest, they don't really know who the father is. And most people say it's probably Lorenz. Right. That he's the father. And so, you know, that's unacceptable according to Andreas. Um, it's kind of weird because they're not married.
1: Right. So there's kind of a plausible scenario where Andreas, who didn't approve of their relationship and also was probably jealous of him because of this weird incestual connection. Right. You know, finds out this is their kid or maybe it's just been stewing within him for so long. Yeah. And then it comes out in this, you know, fit of rage and then this, you know, kind of murder-suicide scenario plays out. Yeah. That sounds pretty plausible.
2: I don't I don't I don't know about the murder suicide though.
1: Just because the the evidence from the autopsy doesn't really support it.
2: Yeah, and I feel like suicide by pickaxe. That's true. You know. That's
1: true. Not really plausible. No, I agree.
2: Like everybody had blunt
1: force trauma cracked skulls
2: severe injuries that showed this was somebody who knew them it was intimate it was angry
1: well that's the other thing too right if if you look at um you know the FBI you know psychological profiles those types of murders where it's you know up close blunt force trauma that does tend to i think um, give credence to the fact that it was someone who knew them, who had a relationship with them. It seems as though it was kind of a crime of passion. Yes. For sure. They, he,
2: the person killed everybody. Everybody was... Six people. Six people. Including a two-year-old.
1: Including a two-year-old child. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, this is a an person, innocent,
2: An innocent maid.
1: Right, right. So, it was like no
2: no onlookers, no, no survivors, no witnesses type thing.
1: Exactly. Which means we'll never... Really know what happened?
2: Cause everybody's dead. Right. Everybody's dead. Everybody's dead. Everybody's dead.
1: That's a sad song. What if we're all dead? What if we're all the dream of a butterfly? What? Ah, it's an old Chinese proverb.
2: <laughs> I read this was like this was like on Tumblr or something, and somebody mm-hmm. was like. What if we're just like some alien c plus science project <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa, dude, could be that's so weird. I don't want to
1: talk about that <laughs> okay. um well, your uh, turn right
2: your turn
1: well, I'm gonna talk about um the phenomenon of cargo cults
2: phenomena. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> Phenomena. Do do. Sorry.
1: That's okay. You're very singy today. Thank you. Yeah. You have a, you have a very positive attitude, even after having talked about the grisly murder of six family members, Ooh. or five family members and a maid, I guess.
2: What does that say about me? I just I'm I'm. It's because it's something that I'm very disconnected from it. It's a, it's. It might as well be a fictional story that I read in a thriller book. Sure. You know that's how crazy it is.
1: And it happened, like, 100 years ago. It happened
2: in 1922, yeah. Right. Okay.
1: So, anyway. To, 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 to get away from the murder temporarily.
2: Now onto something happy.
1: Now onto something pretty interesting. and <laughs> okay, and, uh, and, yeah. So, the the term cargo cults refers to kind of a various sets of religious beliefs, and it started as kind of a pejorative term, mainly from, like, Australian farmers' Who were referring to this phenomenon of people in the islands of Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, basically the area west of Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Papua New Guinea, and then toward Hawaii and the western coast of the United States, that when these native peoples had contact with European settlers, uh, beginning with the arrival of Captain James Cook in 1774 to some of these islands, they basically couldn't conceptualize of how these people got all the stuff that they brought with them. And that's the cargo that the cargo cults are based on. So in their attempt to explain... How this could possibly happen, they basically created a set of religious beliefs that we've uh, come to call cargo cults cool. and the of uh, the sort of main aspects of it of what defines a cargo cult are that it involves a sort of millenarian or eschatological return to traditional practices. Um, what? So, basically, <laughs> it's, it's similar to, um, like, doomsday cults, which are popular all around the world, right? You, you uh, see this, like, there, there's a specific uh, Christian radio host who's actually been predicting the end of the world for several decades now. <laughs> and you see people who will give up all their worldly possessions, quit their jobs. Like,
2: to... Om Shinrikyo.
1: Like Om Shinrikyo. That was his whole thing. But um, it also comes up in this context of these um, mainly Melanesian uh, islands. But I think it's interesting to note that it's that sort of eschatological, you know, end of times belief is something that recurs kind of all over the world. Um, but in addition to that, the there's a... Um, a kind of cultural and natural inversion that is also part of this belief. So the coming of these white settlers, kind of along with later Christian missionaries who taught them about, you know, the Christian concept of, you know, the end of times and the, re- the coming of Jesus and how that's going to bring a new era of, you know, wealth and prosperity in heaven on earth that kind of melded with the traditional. Um, beliefs and practices that they already had. Oh, okay. And those types of cults tended to um, also have that, that aspect where they would kind of purge everything that they had because they believed that in doing that, they would fulfill this kind of belief uh, that the end of times was coming. So they, they need to give up the trappings of their previous life in anticipation of the new kind of heaven on earth.
2: So did they look at these men who came with all this stuff as, like, gods?
1: It differs depending on the particular, you know, one that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. but some of them did, and some of them thought that they were coming from, like, the land of the dead. Whoa. And that these the material wealth that they brought with them since they couldn't kind of conceive of, you know, modern practices in terms of, um, you know, factories and, you know, all these things, um, that these objects must have been created by the gods or by the spirits or by their ancestors, and they were brought from the land of the dead. And in some of these um, cargo cults, they believed that the white settlers were actually taking those things that were meant for The native peoples. So in other words, in their conception, their ancestors were trying to give them all this material wealth, but it was being kind of stolen by the white settlers. And this gets into another common feature of these cargo cults that they tend to um, reinforce a belief that the white settlers and the missionaries and all of those people need to need to be, um, their practices need to be gotten rid of, and there needs to be a return to the traditional practices, which they call custom. And it gets coupled, you know, with this idea of kind of insurrection or, um, you know, a a return to to traditional life and traditional practices. But it's kind of paradoxical because it also is um, coupled with this belief that they're going to be given all this material wealth from... These same people, so it's it's kind of interesting in that way that it it's sort of forward looking to having all of this modern convenience and modern objects, but also backward looking in that it uh, represents a return to the traditional practices before you know the white men came in the 18th century and then through the 20th century with the missionaries and uh, finally with the American Army and various armies that that came to their islands.
2: So it kind of sounds like these people came, and they have no idea who they are and no idea what all the stuff is that they have and they needed to explain it.
1: Exactly, which is...
2: The basis of all religion.
1: It, I mean, exactly, exactly. It's it's one, one, it. one of the bases of, of religion. It's a way in which to explain phenomenon for which there is no rational explanation. For
2: sure.
1: And from these people's perspectives, that's the most rational explanation that... Since these things couldn't have been created by any natural means, they must be created by some sort of spiritual means, and then everything kind of gets slotted into that. Now, what this uh, led to in some of these islands was a ritualistic practice or set of practices where they would create, you know, fake... fake wharfs. They would create buildings in which they would have, like, literally, like, coconut halves that they would put on their ears and pretend that they were radios, you know, because they believed that by doing that, they would cause the gods to bring them this material wealth that had left when the army left at the end of World War II, basically. Now, of course, that didn't happen. That's it didn't so it didn't really work in a sense. So most of those cargo Kar- cults went away after several years. But the one that I'm gonna focus on, which is the cult of John Frum, has persisted all the way to literally today. Okay. Go so the mystery, the central mystery, I think, of uh, what I'm gonna talk about is uh this figure, John Frum. And whether he really existed or whether he was just kind of purely a a fictional uh, concept that was created by the natives or whether he was a hallucination that um, they then used for these kind of purposes.
2: Wait, so we don't even know if he was real?
1: It's not clear whether he was real or not
2: at, at all. How is that possible?
1: Because it's never been really proven one way or the other. Um, the Like Jesus? Yeah, in a, in a similar way. You know, was Jesus a single person? Was Ginga, uh, Jesus a, a set of, you know, um, people who were then kind of conflated in the scriptures? Um, the name Jesus Christ itself is kind of a, a symbol name that refers to this kind of, you know, return or or, um, eschatological belief in the end of times. Uh, John Frum is kind of similar in that way. His name, the last name Frum, there's different ideas of where that that came from. Uh, Some people think that when the Native peoples were introduced to the Americans, they said, I'm Tom from Cincinnati or I'm John from Atlanta. And they kind of misconstrued that to think that they were all called, you know, John Frum. There's also... That's so funny! Right. Um, there's also an idea that it may have been... Um, he may have been called John Frum because in the uh, native uh, pidgin English, uh, From is the word that they use for, like, broom or sweep. So John Frum is this figure who's going to sweep away the excesses and um, the non-traditional beliefs that were brought by the white people, by the missionaries, by the army. And he's going to harbinger this return to traditional practices. And that's really where the the John Fromm cult um, kind of originated. And I'm going to read a quote from one of the local chiefs. Um, He's being quoted by a person who went there in the, um, I believe it was the early 2000s. And he tells this, this story. So this is a quote from a, uh, story by Paul Raffel in Smithsonian Magazine. Quote, Chief Isaac and other local leaders say that John Frum first appeared one night in the late 1930s after a group of elders had downed many shells of kava, which, uh, just an aside is, uh, kind of Mild narcotic drug that may have some kind of hallucinogenic properties as well, perhaps. Nice. Right, so to get back to the quote um, downed many shells of kava as a prelude to receiving messages from the spirit world. This is Chief Isaac speaking. He was a white man who spoke our language, but he didn't tell us that he was an American, says Chief Kahuya, leader of Yakul Village. John Frum told them he had come to rescue them from the missionaries and colonial officials. John told us that all Tana's people should stop following the mi- white man's ways, Chief Kahuya says. He said we should throw away their money and clothes, take our children from their schools, stop going to church, and go back to living as custom people. We should drink kava, worship the magic stones, and perform our ritual dances. So this is the story that they tell. that This was you know, a white man who spoke their language, mm-hmm. um, who— told them, you know, basically gave them this set of beliefs that, you know, I'm an American, but you shouldn't follow what the other missionaries and Americans are telling you. You should return to your traditional practices. And he promised them that if they listened to him, they followed his teachings, and they waited for his return, that he would bring all of this material wealth back to them and i was reading a really interesting um a really interesting paper by a um an anthropologist who was theorizing that this basically maps onto the local culture which is very much based on gift giving so in other words if i'm a powerful person in their society i'll give you you know five pigs and that Proves that I am a wealthy, important, powerful person. Okay. So the more you can give, the more power you have in their society.
2: I wish we were like that.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and there are, you know, there there are cultures definitely um, who are modern who think in a very similar way. I think. Uh, I think Japanese culture, Mexican I was just about culture, to say that. I'm just exactly. That. So, so the, again, the, there's interesting features of this that. Um, I think you can see in in other cultures as well. But the, the theory is that when the Americans and the missionaries and everybody came with all of this inexplicable material wealth, that it created a sense in the local people that they had been denigrated, that by being given all of these things you know, they were appreciative of that and they were interested, but it also meant that they were then lower in, in their own eyes because they couldn't return that those gifts. Okay. So this uh, John Frum character, I think, also represents the kind of perfect strong man in their conception. Um, but they set it up as a strong man who's going to help them to further their own traditional practices. So again, it gets to this interesting paradox of... Um, You know, a a melding of Western culture with their own culture, but also a return to their own traditional practices as opposed to the, you know, Christianity and the, the Western practices. And for them, John Frum really became a symbol of that resistance to the white colonialists. And uh, one of those, um, and this is where we're we're talking about the broom idea, was from uh, an island administrator called Alexander Runtoul, who made that note that Frum also means broom, so it's kind of this kind of sweeping away of the colonialist rule. And this didn't go unnoticed by the people who were there at the time. So in the 1940s, the leaders of the early John Frum movement were actually, actually imprisoned, and they were labeled as martyrs.
2: So what? where was this mainly? Where did this take place?
1: This mainly took place um, in on the islands of uh, what's now called Vanuatu, which was known at the time as New Caledonia. And this is basically a set of about 80 islands that are located you know, um, probably several hundred to thousand miles off the western coast of Australia. Okay. And they're pretty small islands. And the one place where this has most taken root and is still present today, I watched a really interesting YouTube video where they were showing the, um, some of these practices, um, is on the island of Tana. And it's an island that's about 23 miles by about 16 miles, so it's pretty small. And there's about 35,000 people that live there. Mm-hmm. And actually, within that island itself, it's really interesting because there was a kind of religious schism. So even within the John from cargo cults, there, there are two different sects, even just on that small island.
2: That's so weird. Right. I mean, it's like
1: that with a lot of religions. Well, I was going to say, and that's kind of, I think, what keeps coming up with with this is it it mirrors a lot of the aspects of Western religions as well. uh And it's an interesting kind of lens, I think, through which you can see how the development of religion itself has these common features. And I think that's because we're all human and we all kind of need to answer the same questions. And tend to come to some of the same kinds of answers, you know, based on our circumstances. But, um, and this is where I was talking about, you know, people, there were some people who got hurt in this. Um, How so? So there was this religious schism where this man named Prophet Fred, and this was in 1999. Wait, what's his name? Prophet Fred. Sounds like a nice guy. um, He left the, you know, John Frum group and set up his own different group in a different village uh, on the island of Tana, which explicitly mixes Christianity, custom, in other words, the traditional practices there, and this John Fromm cult. Okay. So Prophet Fred said that he had a divine vision, basically, while he was working on uh, a boat, on a Korean uh, fishing boat out in the ocean, where he was given a vision by God, that he was meant to go back to his native land and start, you know, teaching people the real truth of John Frum and Christianity and custom, that he was given this divine inspiration to go back and become Prophet Fred.
2: So is it like his own interpretation of it? Or it's what he saw in this vision and he's like, oh, here's what's actually going on.
1: Well, I think this gets to another, the other mystery in this situation. Do the leaders of these groups truly believe what they're saying? Right. Did they truly have a vision and that's why they're doing this? Or is it more cynical than that?
2: And that's something you could say about anything, anywhere.
1: Which which is also a very salient feature of early Christianity, right? You had different groups, you had the Gnostics, you had the Paulines, and they had different interpretations of scripture. Some of them claimed to have had divine inspiration. Later on, you have John Smith, who has his own, you know, sort of, I think, cynical (laughs) ideas of what Christianity should be. But, um, you know, I think this, this is going to happen. If you have religion, you're going to have different sects of that religion. The thing which gave Prophet Fred the ability to make these claims credibly to the Native people was that he predicted that a certain dam would break within the next, like, year or something, and that did actually happen. What? So thousands of people moved away from the place that eventually got flooded and were saved. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, again, did he do this because he was given some sort of divine inspiration or because he had— knowledge of engineering or because yeah. he was told that by someone yeah. who had knowledge of it.
2: Like, he looked at the cracks and was like, well, blah, 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 blah.
1: Right. It's it's a little hard, you know, to know. But, um... So there, there was religious conflict between these two groups, including what basically amounts to a small religious war in which 25 men were seriously injured. And I believe this was in 2004, if I remember correctly. So like I said, the relative sincerity of any of these religious leaders involved in the John Frum or other cargo cults is kind of up for debate. Um... But that basic story of this white man who's this messianic figure who will return someday and who they believe actually lives within the volcano that's there on the island of Tana. Sweet. And they actually believe that the chief uh, talks to John Frum on a regular basis out in the forest. Sort of similar to John Smith, no one else gets to go. No one else gets to talk to John Frum, but he does, which is nice for him. (laughs) (laughs) He lets us know what John Frum says. And they actually believe that there is a road that leads from that volcano all the way to the United States. So John Frum travels, you know, and in their conception, John Frum is sort of a spiritual figure or maybe a figure who can move between the spiritual world and the corporeal world very similar to Jesus, and there's some debate as to how much of this is kind of, you know, comes directly from the missionaries and the Native peoples kind of taking and using the stories in the Bible and then molding that onto their practices, and John Frum is this very explicitly jesus like figure i mean they they say explicitly you 've been waiting for Jesus for two thousand years we 've been waiting for John from for seventy years. you know how is that any different true, and for real. it's hard to argue with that yeah it's you know but um, the other interesting aspect of this, I think, is how this whole idea of cargo cultism and this conception of the cargo cult, that it can actually be seen as also a lens through which to understand the Western obsession with material wealth. Okay. That it's not that the native peoples, you know, necessarily see it as, you know, we need to get all this stuff that the white people have and how can we, you know, do that, that it's more that we're putting that on to them because the only way that we can understand the world is through this material wealth. I, I sort of disagree with that in a sense because the local culture does have a very strong um, focus on material wealth and the local peoples are, in Tana specifically, kind of awash with their own version of material wealth, which is coconuts and the the crops, you know, the soil there is very, very rich because of the volcano. So it's not as if they were poor, you know, necessarily.
2: I can't stop thinking about... Moana. Right. Through this whole thing. Like the volcano. right And the fact that you said it started over um, near where Polynesian cultures were. Um, yeah. Yeah. And material wealth and that kind of thing.
1: Right. And, and, and they
2: worship the coconut.
1: And how do you make sure that you're going to be able to continue to sustain that? You know, to them the the spiritual world and the material world are always together. They're always in a kind of symbiotic relationship with one another. So it makes sense to me that they would have seen the white settlers and colonialists and missionaries in that same vein. It's, it's, uh, you know, to me it makes perfect sense from their perspective and that, um, You know, although we may never know if John Frum was ever real, will he ever come back? Uh, Is is this a sincere belief by these leaders? I think what um, I take away from it and what what I kind of find most interesting about it are those um, features of the religion that are so similar to religions that we see in the Western world. And it reminds me that any belief that's based on rationality is a belief that should be respected, understood, seen on its own, in its own terms. There's a real tendency, and, and I saw this in stuff from the 50s and stuff from much more modern day, to look at these people and say, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, they think they're going to get cargo. They don't understand. They're backwards. They're ignorant. They're living in poverty. No, not really. (laughs) When when you really look at it, their lives were pretty great. They had all the food they wanted. They didn't need anything else.
2: Do they have a book?
1: Um, There was a a bibliography that I read uh, which described a book called Cargo Cults by Lamont Lindstrom. From from which I got some of the information. Some other of it was from um, Scientific American. So they don't
2: have like a Bible.
1: Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Not that I read about. No, it's basically um, an oral tradition in that sense. But they do have very specific practices. There's actually a uh, John from day on February 15th of each year.
2: I think we should celebrate.
1: Right? And what they do is they actually do a ritual reenactment of army drills, and they have, like, USA written on their chests, and they have um, uh, um, logs that they've, you know, um, cut down to look like... um, To to look like... um, Rifles? Rifles, exactly. And bayonets that they've painted red so it's it's all you know very interesting, and they they wave the American flag, they sing songs is it
2: because John Fromm was American?
1: It was because John Fromm was American. I think it was also because they at least I heard you know some of the native peoples talking in these terms were treated fundamentally differently by the Americans than by the French and the Japanese that had come before. They said that the Americans treated them basically more as equals, and that they saw the black soldiers that had come with the Americans also basically Mm. treated as equals with their white counterparts. Yeah, that's important. And that was very important to them, yes, and um, um, signaled to them that I think these people have something to give to us, apart from just this sense of, you know, material wealth, just the kind of chocolate and the pipes, etc., but that there's a kind of idea— that we can take from them. And John Frum maybe is their kind of embodiment of that idea. He's the perfect American because not only is he American, but he's also us. And not only is he going to give us stuff, but he's also going to give us our traditions back. Yeah. So he's this kind of perfect meld and the, the paradoxes that he embodies, you know, they really embrace those and it's, I think again, similar to other religions, where you have the the mystery, and you're supposed to kind of embrace the mystery and the paradox. You know, was Jesus a man or was Jesus a god? Well, he was both. Was John from a spirit Jesus or a man? Jesus was a black I mean, was woman. Exactly, and God is Alanis Morissette.
2: And Beyonce <laughs> is related to Jesus.
1: Very interesting.
2: Very it's good. true. It's, it's true. It's all true. She has so much power. I mean, exactly. I mean, she's Beyonce. So, that was really good. That kind of um, parallels to that other idea that we were talking about, about religions and how there's so many, and we could mm-hmm. do a podcast just based off of religions. And I would start um, with my own uh, religion. I am a devout Oriist, I right. worship the Oreo. Um, Nabisco is um, my, main, my main god. Right. Uh, Oreos are are a sacred a sacred cookie. You,
1: you were in in you know ingesting of the sacred cookies before we started yes, recording. Yes, sacred cookie. Um, you might be able to hear a little bit of chomping on a sacred cookie at the beginning of the podcast. If you
2: heard that chomping, that means you are
1: devout. That was sacred chomping.
2: You've been chosen.
1: <laughs> chosen by the chomping.
2: Chosen by the Oreo. Ah, 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 ah. We don't kill people though good and if you like also want to be Christian that's totally okay great <laughs> so are you do you want to be an aureus no I have a pamphlet thank you though I'm just kidding
1: I don't have a appreciate pamphlet.
2: it <laughs> okay so I'm gonna be hundred percent honest with y'all I forgot that we were gonna do add a new segment we're gonna do segment add a new segment which would be the weird news um, Mario found a great article if you're gonna do what I think you're gonna do um, But I totally forgot about it, so I'm going to let you talk. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Okay, I'm going to start. Okay. Okay, so I found this really weird article on CBS News, and the headline, I saw the headline and I just, I had to click on it. It says, man declared dead, snores to life right before autopsy. And I was like, what? Although fuck <laughs> that is some weird shit <laughs> so basically so this was in Spain and this is an article from January 10th 2018 so very very recently okay. happened right. where doctors were basically just about to cut into this guy 29 year old Gonzalo Montoya Jimenez he was a prisoner at a jail in northern Spain and they basically went to his cell and he wasn't responsive at all and he was declared dead by three different doctors right now there's some question as to whether they really looked at him or whether they were just like yeah he's dead prisoner you know whatever yeah his family says that he has a history of epilepsy and there are there is this this uh thing that happens which is called a like an epileptic uh catalepsy where you can become you know, trance-like and rigid so it it can kind of seem like you're dead but it's apparently a feature of, um, or a a side effect rather of epilepsy of that condition. So, they had already marked him for (gasps) autopsy. Oh my god. Which I think is the creepiest Uh. part of this whole thing. So they they had like put the marker on his body marking where they were just about to cut into him and then he goes (laughs) And Wait, up. What did, how did that go? This is my interpretation <laughs> of it. Beautiful. <laughs> so think of that when you're going to bed tomorrow. <laughs> he did not end up dying, so He's that's good. that's good at least. This apparently is not the first time that this has ever happened. I mean, I've heard of this before, but in the article they cite also in 2014, a 91-year-old woman in Poland was declared dead and spent 11 hours in a mortuary before staff discovered her body bag moving, <laughs> yeah. and kind of alive. No. Uh. And, and this actually really it reminds me of also how they think people. This isn't really the same thing, but they think people started believing in zombies because they heard sounds coming from recently, you know, deceased and buried people. The gas. But now they know it's because yeah they didn't use embalming and the gas expanded and it made that those sounds and that's what they think so. <sighs> creepy creepy
2: screw that right wow can you oh my god
1: i cannot that's so scary right
2: so uh good job
1: good job by you chloe good job by you i give up
2: i give up
0: Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free